0: This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books
1: published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the U.S. Naval Institute's From the Deck Plates edition of the Proceedings Podcast, where we dive into topics that explore perspectives, opinions, and the experiences of a variety of enlisted naval professionals. I'm your host, Paul Kingsbury, retired fleet mass chief, co-director of outreach for the U.S. Naval Institute, and author of the Chief Petty Officer's Guide. So before we jump into this episode and I introduce our guests, this month the U.S. Naval Institute is taking time with Proceedings Magazine to focus on the U.S. Coast Guard, which celebrated its 231st birthday on 4 August of 2021. If you didn't know, the Coast Guard got its current name in 1915 after Congress merged the Revenue Cutter Service with the Life Saving Service. So definitely check out this month's Proceedings Magazine, get some great insight on what's been done and what's going on with the U.S. Coast Guard. And also check out our website and make sure to subscribe to our To The Duck Plates newsletter. It keeps you informed of special promotions and opportunities. The link to subscribe is in the episode description. I also want to say congratulations to all the U.S. Navy's newest senior mass chief petty officers, as well as putting a plug in for all the newly selected U.S. Coast Guard chief petty officers who are getting ready to go through or probably going through the chief's call to initiation season. So congratulations to everyone. Again, if you haven't had a chance, maybe you want to consider checking out the chief petty officer's guide. Add that to your collection of CPO resources, memorabilia, and swag. You can find more at www.usni.org. And then finally, a plug for essay contests. Time is running out to meet the 31 August deadline for the 2021 Marine Corps essay contest. But there's definitely some breathing room for writers out there for the 2021 Fiction essay contest, which has a 15 September submission deadline. And those of you who prefer to tell stories with pictures rather than words, help spread the word about the 2021 Naval and Mar- Maritime Photo Contest. And by the way, it's never too early to start thinking about the Enlisted Prize Essay Contest and General at Prize Essay Contest, too. And you can get more information on those on our website. All right. So as a command and fleet mass chief, I kept my eye out and had great influence of the policies, processes, and cultural factors that shaped the utilization of at least the U.S. Navy's enlisted force. And I've even written about those kind of things myself. So today I'm excited to welcome two proceedings authors who recently added their thoughts to this conversation. Joining me is U.S. Navy Petty Officer Mike Amenti and U.S. Coast Guard Petty Officer Corinne Zilniki. Mike is the author of the June from the Deck Plates article titled, Use Sailor's Hidden Skills. And Corinne penned this month's From the Deck Plates, and it is titled, Collar Check Culture Holds Us Back. So Mike and Corinne, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. How are things going in the fleet this day?
0: You know, on the reserve side of the house, we are we are keeping incredibly busy supporting our, our active duty component. I'm seeing more and more sailors get really high-profile orders to go out and support our mission. So it's it's busy, but it's a very good busy.
1: How about you, Corinne?
2: Same here, really. You know, very busy, but in a great productive way, at least in the public affairs world here in Texas. We have a lot of Coast Guard operations going on round the clock. So for us, it's just communicating that and telling those stories and keeping up with the pace. But I like to stay busy, so I'm loving it.
1: Awesome. So again, congratulations on getting published. I'm proud of both of you guys. You know, I sent you that initial email, like I do all enlisted authors that get published. But I don't just want to read your bio. So I, I like you guys to tell the audience a little bit about each of yourselves. So let's start with Corinne.
2: Yeah. So I'm originally from New Orleans, and my path to enlisting in the military was a little unusual, perhaps. I joined in 2012 after getting my bachelor's degree in fine arts and graphic design. So going from the very creative artistic world to the military was interesting. I had my sights set on public affairs as my dream Coast Guard job from the very start. And I did have to wait a while, but eventually reached that goal. And I've been a public affairs specialist for about five years now. And I recently had the the opportunity to get my master's degree in journalism and media studies at San Diego State, and this was through the Coast Guard's advanced education program. So here I am, freshly graduated. Uh, Two months ago, I took on the position of supervisor at a public affairs detachment in Houston.
1: Awesome. Yeah, and we're going to definitely get into a lot of that that you just uh, touched upon. So how about you, Mike? What's been going on? What's your background?
0: So I'm originally from uh, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I enlisted in 2010 after my junior year in college. I didn't really have direction where I wanted to grow. I didn't know what to be when I wanted to grow up. I did uh, six years active duty on submarines out of Groton, Connecticut, Uh, transferred over to the reserves, and uh, have been loving it ever since. Uh, You know, I owe the the Navy and the GI Bill for finishing my undergrad and finishing my master's degree. And uh, on the civilian side, I run a quality management program for a contractor that does all of the uh, PMS. So we write the MRC cards for uh, for the Navy. So we do all the submarine maintenance.
1: Okay. So now we know who to blame for all that uh, administrative burden of maintenance. Is that what you're telling me?
0: Oh, we get every day. We get so many TFBRs. It's... <laughs> We do our best to correct it, though. I know. I know
1: it's good people trying to do good things. It uh, is.
0: It's nice because we we were all there. Our our office is all sailors, so we know what it was like to have frustrating maintenance. So we're doing what we can to make it better.
1: Awesome. So both of you, very impressive backgrounds, very impressive work you're doing on active duty and in the reserves. So you both heard my introduction. We've had a chance to talk about this since uh, your articles were published, and each of you has read each other's articles. So let's start by each of you giving us this overview of your piece and what inspired each of you to write your specific article and perspective. So let's start with Mike.
0: Yeah, I think the the big catalyst is when I transitioned into the reserves. Um, You know, the reserve force is really interesting and really dynamic because you have people juggling a civilian career along with their military career. And it's, I'll tell you from experience, it's so much more than that weekend a month, two weeks a year. You know, as our unit's career counselor, I'm every day I'm dealing with personnel issues. And one thing I noticed, especially in the Reserve Force, we have a lot of sailors enlisted and officer pursuing advanced degrees, a lot of certifications that are benefiting their civilian career, but the Navy really isn't utilizing that as much as what I think they should. And quite honestly, it could be a huge savings for them vice going out and bringing in a contractor to do a very similar job. So You know, I saw I saw a deficiency and this was the the perfect forum to to bring it up.
1: Okay, how about you, Corinne?
2: Yeah. So kind of along the same lines, my piece is about problematic gaps, whether actual or perceived uh, between enlisted service members and officers. And I do focus on what I call the collar check or that subtle move that I think all of us in the military are accustomed to. Right. The glance. At someone's collar that tells us how to address them, how to converse with them, and for how long. But in my article, I wrote about how problematic this can be when it becomes more of a permanent brand and defines your worth based on your rank alone. And I know that enlisted and officers do serve very different functions, but especially in a service as small as we are in the Coast Guard, the lines are often blurred between the two And that's a positive thing. But what makes it difficult at times are when prejudices and stigmas aimed at enlisted members get in the way. Beliefs like all enlisted are uneducated, unprofessional, unreliable, um, those sweeping generalizations that are harmful, um, counterproductive and honestly inaccurate, as Mike was saying. So. I was inspired to write about this issue, not only to take a closer look at where these stereotypes are coming from, but to formulate ways that we can hopefully move forward and progress beyond these these notions.
1: Okay. And like I mentioned to you guys, I've written in this realm too, I've written several articles for proceedings, but the one that kind of touches the most on this was make better use of the super chiefs. And that was, I think, blends at both of your kind of pieces about, it's really about using, it's really about talent management at large. And then what are the kind of cultural beliefs in the process – limitations that get in the way of utilizing that talent, especially I see it as the military's evolve. So I look forward to this discussion. So Mike, your article, I think, was, I would call it, quote unquote, a bit more kind of process focused, and Corinne, yours was a bit more culturally focused, but culture does underpin both articles. So to what extent do you think these lingering beliefs that Corinne touched on about the enlisted force influence or impede utilization of enlisted naval professionals? So Corinne, let's start with you first on this one.
2: Yeah, so this idea that enlisted military members are uneducated or uncultivated goes back a long way, but it really seemed to take shape in the Vietnam era. With the draft in place, those who were enrolled in college could earn a deferment from the draft, while those not in college had no such option. Um, and then additionally, we obviously can't ignore that earning a commission as a military officer Uh, whether through a service academy or OCS, is intertwined with higher education. So that association is there, and rightfully so. But I think it's a major oversimplification to say, point blank, officers are educated, enlisted or not. And therefore should only fill these specific roles within service. It's more nuanced than that. And recognizing those nuances in an enlisted member's education, talent, and experience, I think are where we fall short. So questions that I think we should be asking ourselves as supervisors and leaders and officers are, are you fully aware of your individual subordinates? educational history, work experience, skills, are you eagerly or even greedily utilizing their knowledge and skills and helping them obtain more? Or are you simply just giving into this antiquated notion that you shouldn't expect more than the bare minimum from an enlisted member? Okay. How about you, Mike?
0: You know, that reminds me of a quote. I looked up real quick. Um, you see this floating around from the 1894 Office Searching Guide about enlisted men are uh stupid and extremely cunning and and unfortunately, I think that's still Harvard. I think you'd agree with me. We still see that a lot and the unfortunate thing, there are a lot of hard and soft skills that our enlisted force has and you know, if you normalize the numbers, I think we have the most, most highly educated enlisted force that we've ever had and probably any other country has. And that's what makes us the best fighting force. But the problem is that those commanders, those senior enlisted, they need to be able to recognize them. We need to be able to categorize these skill sets. How can they help us accomplish our mission? But how can they help us just better the force in general? It's a, it's a culture shift and culture shift is incredibly difficult.
1: Yeah, and especially that culture, like you said, I think on this discussion, and I've read a lot about this, I'm not like the authority on it, but I've got a very good sense of the, I call it the evolution of our enlisted force. If you go back to, you know, definitely our military force grew out of a structure, out of, you know, a British force and a European force, a Napoleonic kind of structured force, and really out of a feudal system, right, where you had a landed wealthy gentry that established and stood up an army. And frankly, in the colonial days, a Navy, right, before we had a Navy, we just had basically privateers that owned ships and then they paid crews that were uneducated and that were just able-bodied seamen, right? That's what you recruited. But over time, because of that, you had this division of labor, right? Those who had commissions had authorities to make the decisions, who were just not only in the know, but more educated on kind of how things happen and the nature of warfare and those kind of things. And then you had that blue-collar kind of working class that just make things happen and get things done. But over time, as technologically, militaries and navies evolve, you can see that these technical authorities and management skills had to be pushed down, right? So in the Navy side in 1893, we evolve and we develop a chief petty officer rate. And then in 1958, there's a realization of expanding to E-8, and E-9 pay grades. And then to, I think Mike or Corinne uh, made that point earlier, right? Coming out of the draft, you know, we start investing in the professionalization and the education they enlisted for. So it's not just a byproduct of what's happening in society, There were deliberate decisions to shift to an all-volunteer force, to raise recruiting standards, to invest in a GI bill, even more so than post-World War II, and to invest in education tools such as tuition assistance. And all this has come together to yield what I call the modern enlisted force. So I think it is a great point. To take pause at some point and go, okay, that traditional split of who is the decision maker and who has the authorities and what a commission means compared to who could be making decisions and owning pieces of authority that traditionally have been reserved for the wardroom or other parts of the organization. Our discussion today is not the only time that's been happening. Both of your pieces highlight enlisted force education and Corinne, you quote a 2018 DOD demographics report That estimate about 18.4% of the enlisted force held associates, bachelor's, or advanced degrees. And then, Mike, you cite a Navy Times article from 2017 that says approximately 25% have one or are working on one. So, this piece of education matters because it provides you occupational opportunity and flexibility. And then in turn, and this isn't just in the military, this is in the civilian world too, as Mike, you know, right? In turn, increases personal income and moves you up to social hierarchies into different classes of, of money and occupational status. And both of you write from the angle how the services lose out. But I want to get a little bit into your perspective, how the service members lose out when we don't value education or we don't fully take advantage of the talent and skills that they bring. So, Mike, what's your take on that?
0: Quite frankly, it's retention. Any organization, when people leave, they leave because they do not feel valued, and especially now as a career counselor, when I do you know, departure CDVs with sailors, the very first thing I said is you know, they don't feel like they're truly appreciated in what they're doing. Either their time is not being valued or their skill set is not being valued. I mean, let's be honest, whether it's active or reserve, you're going to be compensated better in the civilian world in more cases than not. And we just can't increase pay across the board. That's that's a, that's a huge ask, and we just can't do it. But we can acknowledge our people's skill set and let them know that they're truly valued, great members of this team. And the unique sp- skills and certifications they bring to the table to make us better. Retention number one.
2: As, as naval leaders, retention is the most important thing that we need to be focusing on.
1: All right, Corinne, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah. And I mean, for any service member, especially enlisted members who are actively pursuing education or other professional development training, when you're operating within a negative stigma or acting in a way that is contrary to a stereotype, it can be really challenging on a personal level and discouraging. And unfortunately, I've seen enlisted members pursuing degrees who are shrugged off by their commands or even treated negatively because of their pursuits. And these are people who are managing their education responsibly, but these pursuits are sometimes treated as unwanted distractions from work, from the daily grind. And so I think this pervasive negative attitude may deter enlisted people from taking that first step and using their benefits while serving and from seeking opportunities, you know. I remember when I was a non-rate at my first unit, someone asked the crew during an all-hands meeting to, hey, raise your hand if you have a bachelor's degree. And I think about three or four of us out of 25 people raised our hands. And we immediately received sarcastic booing and hissing from some of our shipmates, including senior petty officers and leaders. So Honestly, the negative treatment regarding education and professionalism doesn't strictly come from officers, but is found within the enlisted world as well, which is self-defeating to say the least.
1: So I think that's a great point um, because I've seen that several times, right? Because I was going to ask you that next and you just teed it up. This general attitude, I think there's an opening and understanding in the wardroom of like, hey, um, we definitely have a more educated, capable, informed enlisted force. I think definitely in the Coast Guard, you know, you provide opportunities for senior enlisted and others to have authorities and command positions and things like that. But to what extent within the actual enlisted force, is there a – I don't know if it's a backwardsness in thinking. I think it represents like a blue-collar mindset, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. But this just general like, hey, you don't need a degree. You just get technical training. I've heard senior enlisted stand up in front of a mixed group of officers and enlisted and say, I have a PhD, You know, public high school diploma. To me, that's cringeworthy, but to others, they embrace that. So, Mike, who's right? Who's wrong? What are your thoughts on this whole thing?
0: I don't think there really is a, a right or a wrong with it, because in good or bad, that is the culture we have, and, and we need to do better. And you know, I think Corinne would agree with me. You know, I finished my bachelor's when I was active duty, and that was incredibly difficult balancing my naval career, balancing my work life, and everything for my family. But we miss the fact that individuals who were pursuing degrees, certifications, and still serving—yes, they're they're great, gaining valuable skills, but. That time management piece we forget about. If you can juggle that, that is incredibly important. It's really not about your name piece of paper or where it's from. It's your time management. And I've seen firsthand too many times senior enlisted kind of Ugh, you have a degree and you're enlisted. No. That that's hurting the force. And I think that if we don't change that, that might be a a rude awakening, you know, in this next great power competition. Because that's gonna be a very unique War fighting scenario that we haven't been encountered with before. And we need to have a very flexible and agile force.
1: Okay. Hey, Mike, real quick. So you're reserve and you've got the civilian experience. So I want to dive into that a bit because um, I've gotten feedback from people who've been enlisted, retired, or maybe not retired, but got out. And then they go into maybe government service where they're competing with other GSs, maybe retired officers or wardroom members, and they're enlisted, and they let me know, like, when I talk about, when that word comes enlisted out, it's actually almost a handicap to my prospects. So what's been your experience from the outside from hiring authorities or companies when they hear enlisted or officer, and is there a value assignment? I'd love your thoughts on that.
0: What I have found is when you get off active duty and you're looking for jobs as an enlisted member, 90% of those jobs are going to be very hands-on, doing-work, field-service types. And some of that is because, hey, that's a lot of what the enlisted do. They're not doing management. But there is a stigma. There is a stigma that, as an enlisted member, regardless doesn't matter what you are, Master Chief or or E5, you're just an enlisted guy. I've seen a lot of JOs get out of one tour who were mediocre JOs but get picked up for six-figure management jobs because they were an officer. I have had conversations with, you know, GS12s, GS13s that I work with as a contractor. And when they find out that I was, they knew I was prior military. I I got the, I got the pin. I I wear my Navy stuff. But when they find out I was enlisted, there's kind of a, a shake of like, oh, you're, you're now managing this as a, you know, prior enlisted. And like, of course, of course I am. I wouldn't be here if I didn't possess the skill sets to it. So unfortunately, a lot of that stigma follows you. Into the civilian world.
1: So, you both write about how training and education processes could be adjusted to enhance talent management or enlisted force utilization. So, Mike, what were your recommendations in your article? You stay at a problem and then you did follow up with some good recommendations. So, can you highlight those?
0: Yeah, and I want to expand on some other things that actually came up after the article as well. Absolutely. You know, I think we need to have better ways to tag these civilian skills, whether they are degrees, certifications, or even soft skills. And we do that to an extent uh, in programs like My Navy Assignment, where you can identify certain occupation codes. But what I found is some of those codes are very general, and they don't really hone in on what the individual's doing in their, let's say, civilian career. Or mine says that I have an MBA, but it doesn't talk about the MIS aspect of it and the database building and those really key skills that the Navy could use. So I think we really need to assess the way we categorize skill sets and build a very large encompassing database to pick out very unique skills, and be able to tag them for certain Navy programs. Because we got we got a lot of reservists who are very accomplished computer programmers who are doing very great things on the civilian side, but the Navy still brings in, I'll say this as a contractor, they bring in contractors and pay an arm and a leg for service that we could potentially do in-house for a fraction of the cost.
1: Okay, so would you envision expanding Navy enlisted classification codes?
0: Absolutely. And I think that is, that in itself is something that we can have a very long and hard look at to make sure that those NECs are specific enough and just can hone in on exactly what that individual is doing. Because in the civilian sector, you know, I can bring in a computer programmer, but there's 30 different classifications for that. But with the occupational codes we use, we have one or two, and they're very very general. They don't really speak to what languages, what certifications they're using. And that's definitely something that we could take a round turn on, and it would it would pay dividends to the entire force.
1: Or you could definitely capture some of this, like, you know, we all know we, you're supposed to at least do career development boards when people check in, right? This could be a discussion like, hey, do you have any other knowledge, skills, or abilities the command could use? And it could really inform... As much as there's been debate about collateral duties and too many, some of those are not going away. Some of those need to be done, but you could really inform your collateral duties list with some people that have actually knowledge, skills, and abilities to best do them rather than those just hunting to fill an eval bullet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I make it a point when we get new sailors to check into our unit. I want to know what degrees and certifications do you have? What are you working on? What hobbies do you have? I, I want to really know the entire sailor. I don't I, I care that you're good at your rate, right? That, that's what we're here to do, to do your job. But I want to know everything about you, what makes you tick. And from that, that can be conversations we can look up in. What, what roles can we plug this individual in to really take advantage uh, of what they bring to the table?
1: Okay. So Corinne, how about you, like training and education processes that you think could be improved to help us better use enlisted talent?
2: I think when it comes to training environments, they tend to be quite insular, right? At least in the Coast Guard, I've noticed in my experience thus far, you train alongside peers most often rather than a truly diverse group with different ranks and work backgrounds. And while this does make sense for some disciplines, I think especially leadership and professional development training would be more dynamic, more realistic if these courses involved officers and enlisted. And I'm thinking about an excellent Coast Guard leadership course I took that all petty officers eventually take as they progress that could have been even better if it had taught students how to navigate those uncomfortable rank-related communication barriers that I think we all inevitably face. Um, And, you know, I think, conflict resolution is a lot easier when the other person's rank matches yours or is similar to your own. So teaching these skills in a more direct hands-on way rather than in a scenario-based or notional manner could make a big impact. And there are other benefits of this type of mixed training environment too. You know, it could... Open new avenues for mentorship between officers and enlisted different ranks. And that's not just from, from the senior to the junior. There's, there's the reverse mentorship as well from junior to senior. It could open new opportunities for networking and just exchanging ideas and and discourse. So I think that's a missed opportunity as it stands.
1: Yeah. I wrote about that in my piece too. I went through the history of evolvement of. Basically, the E8, E9 pay grades. But then I got into some things we were doing in the 90s, early 2000s, and Chief of Naval Operations, Vern Clark, and Mick Pond, Terry Scott, were pushing on some very forward-looking blurring the lines kind of thing. And we'll talk about that a little later. But, you know, for example, command mass chiefs that were qualified and had potential could go to the Naval War College. And I'm telling you, the feedback you would get, not just from the command mass chief going, but the officer students that were there was that it added so much more value to the discussions. And to your point, this thing of leadership, leadership is leadership. There is no, well, I'm an officer, so the way I influence things is different, right? And hey, enlisted leadership. So we like to divide those again, another symptom of this division but the theories and the approaches to leadership—I don't care if you're a commanding officer, or a division chief, leading deck seamen—if you're the principles of leadership and management, those apply to everything. And I'm with you. If you could bring those right people together at the right time, right—and arguably, when I offer you leadership development of you know beginning, introductory, advanced—is going to change. But we do some of this also at Command Leadership School, where the commanding officers, the executive officers, and the command mass chiefs come together. They have some time apart. But then there's times when they come together, and I think that's another model where uh, what you suggest works well. So, what else did you guys recommend in your articles that you think requires adjustment? Like, I think some of you, uh, either one of you, talked on detailing and then evaluation process or qualifications. So, Mike, was there anything else you had to suggest?
0: Yeah, the biggest thing is really seeing Sailor Twenty Twenty Five expand and you know meet every single wicket that we put out. I think the where we see the detailing marketplace going to. If it if it is fully implemented and, and done in a correct way, I think that's going to address a lot of the issues that I see. And that's going to really link up commands with the skill. Uh, on the reserve side, we have a program called ZipServe where active duty commands can literally search for specific skill sets. I need a, a, a SQL programmer or I need somebody with experience on this platform. And that puts it out to all the reservists. We could take that and kind of roll that into active duty as well for when people come up to orders. We can identify the skill sets that they have and, hey, you might have experience with computer programming or certain engines, but you're a cook. Well, let's take that, validate it, and you can roll into that on your shore duty. So a lot of options out there. We just need to make sure they're implemented correctly.
1: Okay. How about you, Coran?
2: I would love to see the Coast Guard and Navy and other services implement 360-degree evaluations. So as it stands, we usually only receive feedback from the top down, and that can have a a huge impact on our advancement or promotions and how we move up through our career. But our subordinates assessments of our performance aren't formally collected or documented um, as it stands. So if managers and leaders were required to actually consider feedback from their subordinates, I think in the long run, it would strengthen internal communication, which is where a lot of these issues we've been discussing stem from. And I think it would hold people more accountable. And ultimately, it would give more value to enlisted members' perceptions and opinions. So it would show them, hey, your insight and your experiences really do matter, and rank doesn't exclude anyone from being held accountable.
1: Okay, gotcha. I wonder to what extent, like on the recruiting side, when you initially test and take an ASVAB or some kind of entrance exam, that's kind of a rough gauge, but no one sits down and goes, okay, hey, what actual skills, proven skills do you have? Corinne, what was your experience when you enlisted? I mean, did they take into account your degree or any background or how did that work out?
2: Well, it was a while ago, uh, so the memory is a little fuzzy, but I don't remember any um, in-depth discussion of my work experience, of my educational background. You know, I joined with a bachelor's degree, like I mentioned, and I think that was kind of a check in the box, right? Part of the discussion, because it's a requisite part of that initial discussion. But I don't, it definitely didn't start there. Um It's been more incumbent on me. um, The onus has been on me throughout my career to bring my skills and my background to the table. Okay. And you have to be assertive about that. So I I had, certainly not in the beginning, I, I didn't really feel like that was being drawn out okay. of me.
1: So let's ask this. So there's people out there listening that are going to naturally say, hey, you had the opportunity to be an officer. You had a degree. I think this is an important part of understanding why people with degrees don't necessarily choose to pursue a commission. So what was your experience with that?
2: Yeah, and I do get that question fairly often. So the place I've landed at, how I explain it is that it comes to vocation. I feel vocationally called to do the job that I'm doing in the Coast Guard. Um, that this job is very specific. It's an enlisted job. There's obviously an officer version of public affairs, being a public affairs officer, which is, you know, kind of a different animal and also in the Coast Guard, not a permanent position. So you would serve likely one tour as a public affairs officer, then move on to something completely different. So for me, this is all about job satisfaction, what I feel called and inclined to do. And it doesn't matter to me that it's an enlisted job that didn't factor into my decision really whatsoever, which some people do struggle to understand.
1: So let's move on. So I think there's another cultural piece to this. Books I'm reading about you know, social classes and hierarchy to kind of get a better sense of this. And this concept is called prestige, right? And prestige is something that's linked to occupation and income. People can and they do associate personal behaviors, lifestyles, and social interactions based on prestige. Or what they think about prestige. Um, They make assumptions about prestige based on these attributes. So, for example, you know, there's a general distinction and there's behavioral expectations of white collar versus blue collar workers. And then one way prestige is signaled is through signs of respect. So things like salutes, greetings, order of precedence. And those things are clearly a part of military life. And Corinne, in your article, you say, Unfortunately, the collar check often becomes a mindset and exacerbates a greater problem embedded in the military tradition, the gap between officers and enlisted members. And these class attitudes are also demonstrated by what people say. And in some cases, well-meaning words of praise from wardroom or civilian people could actually come across or be patronizing. So, Corinne, what are your experiences with military prestige, what you would call collar checks?
2: Okay. So I'd like to preface this by saying I do feel very fortunate in my career. I mean, I've had amazing opportunities to further my education while serving and develop myself professionally. So I would be remiss not to acknowledge that. But when it comes to color checks and microaggressions, as an enlisted member, I have unfortunately been on the receiving end of what I consider rank based stereotyping so for example my presence has been questioned or even challenged in spaces where I was the only enlisted person or one of the only enlisted even though it was fully appropriate for me to be there Um, and many times when I have been praised or commended for hard work or achievements, comments coming from officers or even senior enlisted sound something like, that's excellent work for an enlisted person, or you're really smart and well spoken for a petty officer, or even we need to get you into OCS pronto, as if a competent, educated individual does not belong in the enlisted world. And while I do appreciate the intent behind any compliment like that, I think the subtext is worth examining closer. You know, where does this mindset come from? Is it rooted, like you said, Paul, in this age old ideal of military prestige? But what should a modern version of prestige look like nowadays? Okay, Mike, what do you have to add?
0: Yeah, I think, un- unfortunately, I- I've had a lot of very similar experiences, and I've seen it. I was participating in a joint and NATO exercise and I was giving a whole bunch of briefs and, and typically these briefs were done by officers, very higher ranking officers. So, you know, here comes SGS one to, to give the brief in front of this large joint and, and NATO force. And they loved the brief. It was very good. I got a lot of feedback after it, but there was some very inquisitive looks of why why is this enlisted? Why is this E six giving this brief? Where's his officer? And, it's again, it, it's troubling because they're as soon as I walked on, I was being judged because I was enlisted. They didn't even get to see the presentation, and they had a an idea of what I was going to present them. Fortunately, I, I crushed it and exceeded their expectations, but that doesn't happen a lot. And on the flip side of it, I think all of us have seen the opposite of this, where you would get a, a new member to the command. Maybe it's that E6 who's going to fall into an LPO or you know, a returning divo, and they're not fulfilling what they should be. Uh, It it goes up and down the chain, and it's – stereotypes hurt us as a force, and it's up to that individual to overcome them.
1: Yeah, I think it starts with how you perceive the word enlisted, right? We throw that word around a lot, but it's how you think about it, right? So I look at enlisted from a verb perspective. I enlisted in the military, right? You guys enlisted in the military. There's some that look at it as an adjective, right? That enlisted person, right? And with the adjective form, value gets assigned, right? And then the values are based on beliefs that are misplaced and not entirely, right? I would offer there's a standard distribution of behavior, you know, in the enlisted force, but I'm also going to offer there's a standard distribution of behavior in the wardroom as well. So this mindset of behavior Is something else we got to get into, right? I think there's always an assumption, right? As you heard, an officer and a gentleman, there's an expectation that these behaviors are just natural. I think that's one point of it, right? And then enlisted members needed to be incentivized to be good with things like good conduct medals and these incentives towards behaving well, right? And again… We can go back in time, and that probably applied and was true, but we've carried many of these things through. And, and as we've seen, there's been instances of behavior like, you know, Glenn Defense Marine, We're in the wardroom, there was very bad behavior as well all the way up through the flag officer ranks. So, again, I think it's great to have this conversation and just get people to stop and think about what that word enlisted means, but don't limit your frameworks about capability and talent management because of it. And then, Corinne, to your point, even within the enlisted force. You know, when I look at talent management, you know, for example, we struggle with manning on the Navy side. In some cases, we can't man, you know, a chief petty officer billet because we just don't have the chief petty officers to distribute. So perhaps I have an E7 or a chief petty officer with eight years in the Navy, and perhaps I have an E6 in the same division, a first class petty officer with 12 years, more experience, more qualifications. We would naturally default and go for the uniform, the collar check perspective of like, obviously, if you're wearing khakis, you bring more value. And I see us dismissing that potential talent just because of this construct of prestige and rank. So any thoughts on that, Corinne?
2: Yeah, I I completely agree with you, Paul. I think I've thought a lot about um, the enlisted world just in and of itself and how we can chip away at this problem, you know, not just looking outwards at the the gap between us and officers, but you know, I think how we how we talk amongst ourselves, how we treat ourselves, how enlisted supervisors interact with junior members, you know, new enlisted members straight from boot camp, you really set the tone and and those first impressions can last a very long time. So I think we need to really examine ourselves and our our conduct and our interactions and see what tone are we setting for ourselves as enlisted professionals and I like to use that word um, because I, I mean it very sincerely that you are a professional as an enlisted member and you should strive for professionalism so it, it takes it takes some putting yourself under the microscope and taking a look at the language you use um, on the job you know innocuous comments that I think we fall into the trap of using in the enlisted side of, of the service that I think we should start vanishing, you know, in order to move forward.
1: Okay. Hey, Mikey, you got anything to add to that?
0: Yeah, because I, 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 too, I really love the enlisted professional. And I think when you bring that up to, to junior sailors and sometimes you'll be the first person to mention, hey, you're an enlisted professional, that can really change their mindset. And I think that mindset is, is this a job or is this your career? Is this a devotion to you? And I think you can really help them love what they do and empower them to better themselves both in the Navy and in their personal life. That really speaks volumes, and that that's what, in my opinion, that's what turns on that enlisted professional switch and kind of really ignites the fire in in an individual to excel.
1: Okay. And then I think we get the discussion eventually leads to a discussion on reconciling pay and respect for experience. And I've heard this one. I wrote about this, right? You got, you know, I got, you know, high experienced, educated person. I'll take Corinne, for example, right? And if I put you against your officer counterpart of 01 or 02, and I lay paychecks next to each other, and then I ask who actually can bring more value to the organization based on their experience, based on their education. And that experience is the relationships with people along the way. I could easily argue that we should be targeting pay towards talent uh, in this construct of enlisted versus officer pay structure is part of the problem as well. And then who respects who, right? I got it. We default to saluting the commission officer, but respect flows both ways. So those courtesies should be evaluated as well, at least from my perspective. Any last thoughts or oh, by the ways, Corinne?
2: Yeah, I would just implore – Every service member, regardless of whether you're active, reserve, the most junior enlisted person to, you know, high ranking officers to examine your own attitudes toward this issue. You know, a lot of times we we don't really stop and think about, well, how do I feel um, separate from all else? And why? Why is that? So delve deep, scrutinize yourself and your actions like I said, I think we need to watch our words and the environments we build with our words. We can celebrate achievements and empower our people without undermining them or limiting their options. And, you know, like I said, too, that goes for enlisted members. Watch how you present and talk about yourselves. Don't lower your own standards based on rank. Uh, stop saying things like, I'm only a junior petty officer or I'm just a grunt. What do I know? Banish that from your lexicon because as we've discussed today, there's enough people in the military waiting to put you in a box. So don't make it easy for them.
1: All right. Any, you know, by the way, is there anything last to offer, Mike?
0: Uh, yeah, and, I, and I'll, I'll build on what Corinne said. Um, I think something that every everyone in the service should be doing, but especially those in a leadership position, take some time and read about emotional intelligence. I've done multiple Sailor 360 topics on emotional intelligence. And if you can put yourself in the framework of the individual you're addressing, whether they're higher than you or lower, that's going to make you a better communicator, a better leader. I think if we all put a lot of time into studying emotional intelligence and learning what makes us and others tick, a lot of communication issues generally will go away.
1: Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to invite you on to my Cutlass podcast to talk about that if you're willing and
0: able. Uh, Absolutely. I I love – so I I teach teach some college courses on the side. I teach for graduate students business, and I focus a lot on emotional intelligence. I I don't think you can teach leadership, but we can refine leadership, And, and the first step is emotional intelligence.
1: All right, everyone, that'll wrap it up. My guests today are Corinne Zelnicki, her From the Deck Plates article, Collar Check Culture Holds Us Back, is in this month's edition of Proceedings Magazine. And Petty Officer Michael Lamenti, whose piece Used Sailor's Hidden Skills, was in the June edition. Take time to check out their articles. I'm going to link them in the episode description. I also captured them in my To the Deck Plates newsletter. So if you haven't subscribed to that, as I mentioned in the beginning. So do you have thoughts and experiences to offer this conversation? We want to hear from you. So help us make the forum come to life. You can provide them online or offer them via email to commentanddiscussion at usni.org. And your comments could be published in a future edition of Proceedings Magazine. So Mike and Corinne, thanks to both of you for your service. Thanks for offering us your insight, your experience, and your time. Like I said, I'm so proud of you guys. Please keep writing and please dare to make a difference and keep daring to make a difference. And then finally... Please help me serve as ambassadors for the U.S. Naval Institute to help tell who we are, what we do, and the value of throwing in your thoughts and writing in the forum. So good luck to you guys.
2: Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you, Paul.
1: All right. That wraps up this From the Deck Plates edition of the Proceedings Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the Proceedings Podcast. And until next time, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.